Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. 11 a.m., how y'all doing? Who's, uh, who's finished? Who's finished shopping? Anybody finish? Anybody like, yeah, I got it done. I'm good. Yes, yes. I, I don't know. I don't know. I see maybe one or two hands. Everybody else got to keep going this week, huh? Going to shop till you drop. Amen? Amen. All right. Thanks for laughing, babe. I love you. Um, uh, I, before we get started in today's message, I want to uh, just reinforce and emphasize uh, in January, we'll be starting a 10-week Gospel Connect um, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I know that there, I spent a lot of years sitting in a church pew, minimally transformed, wow. right? You know, attend regularly, but not a lot of just, I don't know. And I think that sometimes, you know, attendance at church can really become a, a, a habit or a tradition or a ritual, and before we know it, um, we're, we're here, but we're, we're not here, you know? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think the body of Christ, you know, God, the Holy Spirit transforms our lives, trans renews our minds. And I think when we take our eyes off of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we take our eyes off of what the Spirit uses to bring transformation. The Holy Spirit who does the transformation, but it's through the beautiful good news of what Christ has done for us. And so if I could, it's an open invitation to join us for 10 weeks in January as we're gonna sit down and just discover the gospel together. Some of you might be like, 10 weeks on the gospel? Absolutely, it's even deeper than that. Uh, if you're a member of Inspire Church, um, if you're not a member, you are all welcome. But if you are a member of Inspire Church, uh, we are asking that our members would prioritize being there. The pandemic has definitely erased our midweek rhythm, hasn't it? And some of us have gotten so used to that that we stacked our midweek with, with more events. Um, but we want to get back to that rhythm and we want to be a church. When we stand up here every Sunday and we say that we are being transformed by the gospel, we want to mean it. We don't just want to say it. And so uh, members, you'll actually be receiving some correspondence from me this week. And so I hope that you would consider renewing your membership commitment and joining us for our Gospel Connect. Amen? Amen. Amen. Three weeks ago, we began our Advent series, right? Advent means coming or just the arrival, uh, the anticipation of something important taking place as something happens with the heater. Um, and so we've been celebrating traditionally throughout church history, the four weeks leading up to Christmas is kind of the Advent season in which we are anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. So three weeks ago, if you are here, we were here, we began our Advent series reading through the entire genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1. And I read through it and, uh, you know, struggled through that genealogy for sure. 
And so today, as we bring this series to a close, we're going to go back to Matthew's genealogy. Don't worry, I'm not going to read it all. But we are going to focus on one final branch in Jesus's family tree, okay? So we're going to go back to the genealogy of Jesus. We're going to read it again, but I'm not going to read all of it. We're going to focus on one final branch in Jesus's family tree, amen? So Matthew chapter 1. Verse 11 and 12, and we'll have it for you here on the screen. And I'm just going to have my amazing production team leave this verse hanging here for a long time. Like We're going to sit on this verse, um, but I want to read that to you uh, right now. And it reads like this, and it's just kind of an abrupt start. Remember, this is we're kind of crashing in the midst of a genealogy. And so Matthew 1, verse 11 and 12 reads like, reads like this. And Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. That's going to be important. Jeconiah at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatil and Sheatil the father of Zerubbabel. So there's going to be two important pillars to our message today. Jeconiah during the deportation to Babylon, and then Zerubbabel after the deportation to Babylon. So here's our path this morning. So I'm really going to go through the weeds, and I just want to remind you of the path so that you don't get lost. Amen? Amen? 11 a.m., I'm going to need you to talk back to me today. So, you know, for, not for my sake, but for your sake, the best way to stay awake this morning is to maybe take notes and talk back. Amen. But I'm going to, we're going to travel through this path. And so here's the path. We're going to go from Jeconiah to Zerubbabel and from Zerubbabel to Jesus Christ. So I'm going to attempt to do what Pastor Roger has been doing. And it's been very difficult. I'm going to attempt to move us through hundreds of years and multiple prophets in less than 45 minutes. So, <laughs> so like 45 minutes, man, I need a 30 minute. We don't do 30 minutes here at Inspire. So if you're visiting, I just want you to know now, this might be not be the space for you. We love you. God bless you. But we go in. Here we go. 45 minutes or less. We're going to try to move through, a, through hundreds of years. Pray for me that I'm clear and concise this morning. And I'm going to pray for you. That you would receive what the Spirit of God would illuminate from the text, okay? So pray for me that I'm clear and concise as I kind of move through this. And I want to pray for you that today's not just a regular Sunday, just your regular rhythm, kind of a mindless, you know, kind of attendance. But that the Holy Spirit would truly illuminate the text as we walk through it. And that there would be some depth developed in you and that you would glorify Jesus by the end of our time. Heavenly Father, I know I need you. Help me to be clear. Help me to be concise. Help me to pause where the Spirit wants me to pause. I pray for all the ears that are hearing today, but not just the ears. I pray for the hearing hearts. I pray that we would all be able to walk out of this room saying that we heard from the Lord, that the Holy Spirit illuminated the text and brought the gospel to bear on our hearts this morning. I love you. We love you. It's your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Okay, a little story time. Well, a lot of story time. Remember, Jeconiah, Zerubbabel, 
And the ultimate goal is Jesus. And so Jeconiah, during the deportation of Babylon, let me paint what that looked like. After centuries of idolatry and injustice, and after ignoring the repeated warnings of God's prophets, even killing some, God finally had enough with the rebellion of his people. And so God raises up the Babylonian empire to judge Israel. God raises up the empire of Babylon to execute God's judgment on Israel for their prolonged disobedience. And God's judgment was severe. In 587 BC, Babylon surrounded Jerusalem besieged Jerusalem and once they had choked Jerusalem off to the point where no supplies were coming in and coming out and those in the city were dying and desperate Babylon entered the city Babylon destroyed the city Babylon dismantled the temple that Solomon had built brick by brick and finally Babylon had carried both the people of God, Judah, and their king, Jeconiah, into captivity. That's what the deportation is. And if that wasn't a nightmare, if that wasn't horrific enough around the same time that this is taking place, the prophet Ezekiel has a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple. And so the people of God are taken into captivity. The house of God is dismantled brick by brick and the glory of God removed. Now, if you remember the genealogy and you remember the stories, right now, what had once been promised to Abraham and what has once been promised to David, do you remember a land, a people, a dynasty, a blessing to the nations? What had once been promised to the generations of Abraham was now in serious jeopardy because of the continued unfaithfulness of Israel. And yet, even though men and women break their promises, God is always faithful to him. Is. And so though it is dark and bleak and the presence of God has left the temple and the people of God have been removed into captivity, though it looks like the promises are done because the people have breached their covenant contract, God has remained faithful to his promises. So while the people are in exile the prophets begin to whisper of a return. The prophets begin to speak of a future hope. The prophets begin to talk about a day that's coming, an advent. A day that's coming that would feature, are you ready? A new Jerusalem, a restored temple, and a re-established Davidic line so that the promises that were once there that now seem in jeopardy would be re-established. Are you with me? Yeah. Amen. And this longing 
is captured in our Christmas hymns. And I think that sometimes we become so routine and robotic in things. It's just human nature. Amen. If you're like me, you do something over and over again. You kind of thoughtlessly participate in it. And sometimes as we're singing the Christmas hymns, we're not understanding what the Christmas hymns are drawing out. But this is, this is the longing that was captured in the Christmas hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and Ransom Captive Israel, that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. That Christmas hymn and other hymns that we sing capture the advent waiting of a people in exile anticipating the salvation that the prophets foresaw. So after 70 years of hoping, after 70 years of longing, God began to shake the nations. Babylon, what that was once mighty, falls. And a new world power in Persia takes over. And the, the new Persian administration permits a remnant to return back home and rebuild Jerusalem. Are you with me? Now, leading this return home were two men, Joshua, who was a high priest, and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jeconiah, who was the last king of Judah, who had been deported to Babylon. Y'all see that in here, right? And so you see that first line, Jeconiah who had been deported to Babylon, and then Zerubbabel, who is now after the deportation. And let me just say this. I love when history affirms prophecy. I mean, isn't that the point of the genealogy of Jesus? Like, we don't worship a mythology. I said this in week one. Jesus isn't Hercules or Hermes. He, he is grounded in history. And the genealogy is, is prophecy and history. It's the proof that God is faithful to his word. And though David's dynasty had been disgraced and carried to Babylon, it was not lost. Because God is faithful, even in captivity, God, are you ready, was carefully watching over his word and preserving David's line, not just for David's sake, but because he said it, and what God says, he does. And can I just kind of pull out of the text for a moment and tell you, God always reserves for himself a remnant. God always preserves for himself a faithful few. 
a faithful few that continue to trust God's plan even when it all looks like it's falling apart. This is the story of those who are faithful in exile. This is their story. Deported out of their homeland. Taken away from the place that they called home. Loved ones killed, murdered, surrounded by death, living in a place in a foreign land. And yet God preserves a faithful few that even though it looks like things have fallen apart and even though it might feel like God has abandoned us, God reserves for him in times of darkness a faithful few that will trust that he is sovereign and this is part of his plan. God always reserves for himself a faithful few. Are you ready? That live in Babylon, but don't look like Babylon. A faithful few that refuse to compromise. Because even though everyone else had said, we're going to forget God and we're going to worship the gods of Babylon. We're going to participate in the Babylonian traditions. We're going to live like and look like Babylonians. But there was a faithful remnant in Babylon that refused to look like Babylon. And I believe this is the church of Jesus Christ today. And I said this at 9 a.m. And I'll say it at 11 a.m. And I really don't intend to step on toes, but by nature of what I'm going to say, it will step on toes. But I want you to know that America is more like Babylon than it is like Israel in exile. And the church is called to preserve and to be faithful While living in Babylon. Amen. Amen. While living in this world and its systems. Its political systems. Its financial systems. We're called to preserve. A faithful few that lean on God's word while waiting on him to do what he said he would do. Throughout redemptive history, God always reserves for himself a remnant, a faithful few that will endure exile and bring him glory. And so we move from Jeconiah, who was deported, and the people in Babylon, to Zerubbabel after the deportation. In 538 BC, how y'all doing? Good. Amen. 538 BC, Zerubbabel and Joshua, along with the first wave of Jewish captives, returned to Jerusalem. Oh, happy day. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Pastor Roger. I knew, I knew, I knew somebody in here, huh? And here's what happened. I love this. And immediately they began to rebuild the altar. I love that. They returned 
And the first thing they did is we are going to rebuild this temple. And they began to rebuild an altar. And they began working on the temple. And it took them two years to lay its foundations. But because of political opposition, politics played a role back then. Because of folks in the area campaigning, because of powers in the region afraid of what a restored temple might mean, they began to uh, 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 complain. They began to politic back to Persia and convinced the Persian administration to stop funding the restoration project. And so, because of that opposition, and more, and we'll find out in a moment, the foundations of the temple were laid, but the temple remained unfinished for 18 years. 18 years. And it wasn't until the Lord sent his prophets, Haggai. And I don't often times try and pat preachers on the back while I'm preaching. Uh, I I don't want to come off arrogant or prideful, but can I just say, thank the Lord for his oracles, his prophets. Thank the Lord for the men and the women who are faithfully declaring God's word without compromise to God's people. Because while the temple is left unfinished, God raises up a prophet to take the people who are unwilling to move and cause them to move. To take a people who have become complacent and cause them to stir up again. Are you with me? God raise up a prophet to stir the people. You want to know what the prophet pointed out? The prophet pointed it out that the reason why the temple had remained unfinished was because the people were more willing to invest their money in their homes than in God's house. Read it this week. It's it's two chapters. Haggai. The reason why the temple remained unfinished for 18 years was because the people were more concerned about decorating their homes than they were about building God's house. You can see why sometimes the prophets were killed. You can see why sometimes the prophets were tempted to preach a different message. What a gut punch. You see, they had conveniently excused the rebuilding process by saying, well, we encountered opposition and the Persians stopped funding. And so it excused them to allow the temple for 18 years to remain untouched. Now, I promised myself, and I'm going to say it, I promised myself that I wouldn't make this about tithes and offerings. <laughs> like, I wouldn't make it about, you know, giving to the matching grant. I promise, I promise, I promise. We can't get so caught up in money because if we focus on the money, we'll miss the problem in the heart. 
You see, money is an external, you give. But, but connected to the outward expressions yeah. is a heart. Yeah. Yeah. And so, though a televangelist might focus on money. And can I say this? There, there is an application somewhere in here. But if you overemphasize the money, you miss the heart that's connected. You see, for Israel, God's temple, this is important. This is important. For Israel, God's temple meant God's presence. In fact, last Christmas, we talked about the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle. And it represented the presence of the Lord and wherever the people went, God went. In fact, wherever God went, the people went. And when the people established Jerusalem and they built the temple, it meant that the presence of God was permanently there. And so the temple was synonymous with the presence of God. It was Emmanuel, God with us, before Jesus was the temple. For, for Israel, God's temple represented God's presence. So Haggai's rebuke had something much deeper, went much deeper than money. Haggai's rebuke was about their loyalty. Haggai's rebuke was about the allegiance of their hearts. Haggai's rebuke was about their passion and desperation for the presence of God. In deprioritizing the temple and prioritizing their own homes, the motive of their heart became clear. Their passion and desperation for the presence of God was not there. So the prophet Haggai calls them to, in verse 5, chapter 1, consider your ways. That's what he says. He says, consider your ways. And I think that we should do the same. I think we should consider our, way, our ways. Like, what are you investing in? What does your investment portfolio look like? And let me put it this way. What are you prioritizing? Where are you spending? And when I say investing and spending, we all think money. But, you know, you can spend your time. You can spend your effort. You can spend your energy. You can spend a lot more than money. And so the question that Haggai is asking is, what are you investing in? Where, what is the priority of your heart? What consumes you? What's your passion? Your passion project is not the temple. It's your home. And I think we use the word passion a lot. I think when you use the word a lot, you don't realize what it really means. And I think we're very flippant. Oh, I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about that. I want to do something that I'm passionate about. But when you think of the passion of Christ, what you see is Christ's suffering. Because what passion means, passion means what you're willing to suffer for. What are you willing 
to spend your life for? What are you willing to suffer for? And so this was not about the money. This was about the passion for the presence of God. And so we ask, consider your ways this morning. Where are you spending your time? Where are you spending your money? Where are you spending your efforts? And as you consider these things, what might they be revealing to you about your relationship with God? What might they say to you about your relationship with God? You know, I use this this morning as an illustration and I think I always feel the weight of insecurity and if you've been around enough, you know that there's a tension. I, I never want to be a pastor that manipulates or uses the word to, I just don't want to spiritually abuse folks. Like I'm very hyper aware of that. But as I wrestle through this tension, and I think it's really important. The one thing that I've been thinking about because we've been having a conversation with our serve teams, right? It's difficult. <laughs> it's not easy, right? Yeah. But the one thing that I've been thinking about, the church's opportunity to serve. Here's what I'm grateful about the opportunity, why I'm grateful about the opportunity to serve. Because for most people, not everybody, but for most people, if you weren't serving in the church, you, where would you be volunteering your life? Where else would you be practicing this regular rhythmic of laying down your priority without direct benefit to yourself, right? Now, there are many of you in here, you volunteer, you work outside of the church. It's not all about the church. In fact, we want people out. We want to do our best not to consume people with programs so you can't be a light outside. But my point in all this is that there is a beautiful space for you to spend some of your life and your time giving to something bigger than yourself. So the prophet Haggai, it's not about the money. It's not about the serving. You are loved by Christ. He died. He bled. You've been covered with his righteousness. You don't need to do a work. Christ has done all the work. But we respond in worship and we lay our lives down because he's laid his life down for us. And let that be the motivator of our life. Let that be the motivation of our story. Don't let anyone manipulate you. Don't let anyone convince you that your salvation is on the line. But look at the beautiful, glorious sacrifice of our Savior and what it means and ask yourself, how can I lay my life down in response? Very difficult to do in Babylon. Men, let me just say Silicon Valley. Where it's all about your home, isn't it? It's all about your investment. It's very difficult. It's tough for the remnant to live in Babylon and not look like Babylon. As we continue, and you guys are doing great. There's good news and there's bad news. The good news, Zerubbabel and the people repent. They repent. 
praise God. Like, you know, I mean, sometimes the preachers will be focusing on, but they repent. They hear the Lord. They hear the word, right? Because all of us are sinners. Like, I drift every day. I drift, I, you're not, you, we all, our hearts, we, we make idols regularly. We drift. But the beautiful thing is that they hear the word of the Lord and they respond to the word of the Lord. Not defensive or angry, but humbly and Zerubbabel and the people consider their ways and they repent. And they get back to work. I love that. And they begin to rebuild again. But here's the bad news. As they're rebuilding, the new temple pales in comparison to the old one. You see, the previous temple had been built by Solomon. It was glorious. Solomon's temple boasted an interior covered with gold. Solomon's temple contained the Ark of the Covenant. And Solomon's temple, when it was finished being built... The Shekinah glory of God fell so heavy on the temple that the priests collapsed, unable to minister in the presence of God. Wow. Zerubbabel's temple was much smaller, the material much cheaper. It didn't hold the Ark of the Covenant. And as it was being dedicated, there was no manifestation of God's glory. Instead, there were only sounds of people weeping in disappointment. You know what the scripture tells us in different places? That there are two groups of people. There were the younger generation that had worked really hard to build a temple. And they're like, yeah. And then there were the older generation that were wailing and weeping and disappointment and discouragement because it paled in comparison to Solomon's temple. And it was in the midst of this deep discouragement that the prophet Haggai encouraged God's people. And he encouraged Zerubbabel with a future hope. I love that. Current discouragement and despair met by future hope. That's Advent. That's what it is. It's a people waiting in darkness, experiencing discouragement and despair. And what's holding them together are the promises of a future hope. A new king, a new Jerusalem, a new kingdom, a new temple where God would be with us. And the Davidic line restored And so Haggai, in the midst of the disappointment and wailing of the people comparing their temple with Solomon's, he speaks to the congregation in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, and this is what he says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the dry land 
and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace declares the Lord of hosts. And then to Zerubbabel, a little while later, Haggai says in verse 2, chapter 2, 20 through 23, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and the riders shall go down everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Our journey today has taken us from Jeconiah, the disgraced king, who is the grandson of Zerubbabel, or who is the grandfather of Zerubbabel. Our story has taken us from Jeconiah to Zerubbabel, and now we're going to move from Zerubbabel to Christ. I'm going to spend our last moments together looking at four elements from these prophecies that will help us anticipate Christ as we sit seven days away from Christmas as gift buying and receipt purchasing and taking things back and buying and planning for family. As that starts to consume you, I want to pull ourselves out of that and I want to celebrate the coming of Jesus. I want to anticipate Christ in these last few minutes together. And here's how we're going to do it. Four elements that are going to bring kind of this kind of unclear picture to clarity from Zerubbabel to Jesus. And here they are. We're going to talk about the signet ring, the treasure of nations, the greater glory of the latter house, and the place of peace. And don't worry, I can make a 10-hour sermon out of that, but we will speed through this. You are doing great. First, the signet ring. A signet ring was a symbol or a seal of a king's royal authority. Like, have you ever maybe heard someone say, kiss the ring, right? That was a sign of honor and respect, and it was a seal of his authority. So here's what's interesting. Way back in the day when Zerubbabel's grandfather, King Jeconiah, was deported to Babylon, the prophet Jeremiah depicted the deportation as God removing a signet ring from his finger. And so when Jeconiah, the king of Judah, was deported, David's dynasty was disgraced and God said, I'm removing the ring. But now... What was once removed in disgrace was being put back on in hope. Zerubbabel, who wasn't just the grandson of Jeconiah, but also a descendant in the line of David, was now heir to the throne. 
And he was leading the way in the rebuilding of the temple. I want you to know, in some ways, Haggai's prophecy was made to Zerubbabel. But I like to think of this prophecy and as most of these eschatological kind of these, these prophecies that speak of a time, but also there's a future fulfillment of a time. doesn't just speak to Zerubbabel, but speaks through Zerubbabel. And in a sense, Zerubbabel was a type of Christ. Christ means an anointed one, right? And, and he was a foreshadow, get this, of a returning king to a new Jerusalem. And this returning king would usher in the presence of God, rebuilding the temple. You see, what God was doing in Zerubbabel was rebuilding the temple and restoring the disgraced Davidic line in preparation for the coming of Christ. Now, I'm going to move fastly, but what's really fascinating about this is kind of Zerubbabel just kind of drops off. Like, we don't really hear much about him after all. The history is real fuzzy. Like, some scholars think that maybe Persia kind of got ear to this growing threat and actually assassinated Zerubbabel. But there, there's no historical evidence. We're just unsure where he went. In fact, the entire scripture is just ultimately going to go silent. And, and this promised heir and king who Zerubbabel kind of is, really is not. And so Israel kind of, though they're home, they'll experience more captivity, more opposition. The temple will once again be assaulted, but they're still waiting for this king. So we move from the signet ring, you guys are doing great, to the treasure of nations. Now, scholars have debated over the interpretation of this phrase. They've pointed out two possibilities. One, Haggai could be referring to a future time when people all around the world will come to the new Jerusalem and place their wealth inside of the temple. And that one day this simple te temple would be filled with the wealth of the nations. But there is a, another way that this phrase has been interpreted. And instead of interpreting as the treasures of the nations, this phrase has also been interpreted, the desire of nations. Now, let me ask you a question. If I asked everyone in this room, what do you want for Christmas? Like, it's virtually, it's impossible that, every, that all of you are going to say the same thing. Yeah. Some point, and probably by the time I get from one to the next, there's going to be a deviation. We all want different things. We all can't, even in our own homes, we can't even agree with our spouses what we want. We all want different things. And yet the text says that there is a desire of the nations. Now, what in the world could all the nations agree on and possibly want? Well, we all long for a perfect king. Roger did an incredible job last week articulating this. We all want a just judge. We all long for someone who could make right everything that is wrong. We all long for someone who can provide us with safety, security, and prosperity. This is why we get so caught up in elections. Amen. 
This is why we get so caught up in campaigns and, and we create political idols. See, every nation longs for a Messiah but settles for sinful woman or man. But as God's people, we can't be fooled. We can't be fooled. And I want to speak maybe to the American church during political seasons. We cannot be fooled. We cannot be fooled. No matter what side of the aisle you live on, even if you think you sit in the middle. You want to know what we know? Based on the word, we know that our king and our kingdom is not of this world. So we sing the chorus to that old hymn, Come, thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. We move from the signet ring to the desire, the nations, to the greater glory of the latter house. As glorious as Solomon's temple was, the greatest glory that the world had ever known would ultimately be contained in Zerubbabel's temple. And this unimpressive, Hail in comparison, temple. The greatest glory the world would ever know would be contained in Zerubbabel's temple. But it wasn't carted in like the Ark of the Covenant, nor did it fall down from the sky like the Shekinah glory of God. But instead, 500 years after Haggai gives this prophecy, the greatest glory the world had ever known would be carried into Zerubbabel's temple in the arms of Mary. Luke tells us, and when the time for their purification according to the law of Moses came, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Further down, Luke continues. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. I love this. And he came in the spirit into the temple no coincidence and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law he took up 
he took him up in his arms, blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Listen to what he says. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Here it is. And for glory to your people, Israel. Right there in this unimpressive temple where people wept and wailed because of its lack of glory. The glory of the Lord filled the room in the form of a baby. God in flesh. Finally, a place of peace. When we think about that future coming of Christ, when we think about the kingdom being consummated, we think about that future glory, that messianic age. When we think about the blessing of that age, you could sum it up in one word, peace. Shalom. But if we're being honest, it feels like we're in exile. Men? Maybe it's just me. In fact, when I look around at the world, it seems only to be getting worse. I mean, the world's always been dark. But I think just, we're just, we just have so much exposure to the darkness. We can't be ignorant no more, it's right. It's on our devices a front row seat not just to the darkness in your own life but to the darkness of this world and it, so it feels like it's getting worse and I pray for my son I pray for my son and can I just deviate for a minute like if there's a time mom and dad to pray like is a time to raise your child in the way that they should go like is it, if there's a time to bring them to the house of the Lord yeah. if there's a time to live in rhythms not because of religiosity not because if I go to church and God will love me more you're already fully loved in Christ but if there's ever a time to establish yourself in God's house if there's ever a time to exemplify rhythms of life if there's ever a time to bring your child thank God to all the kids workers in this room we honor you if there's ever a time to bring your child in teachers if there's ever a time to take your time to train our children in the word, to give them a clear picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there's ever a time to preserve the remnant, to remember that God thinks generationally. Like it's not just about you and your house. It's about you and your house. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's a fight. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, there's opposition. But I, I can't lie. I can't lie. Me. There are times when I get frustrated with being faithful. Can I say that? Uh, I get tempted to blend in. There are times when I get tired of investing into the kingdom. Like, can I be honest? There are times when I get tested, when I get tired of investing in the kingdom. Just got to let it all go. 
pursue whatever the world has to offer. But during those times, I remember that God has promised a future hope in glory. And though I may be in exile, and though I may feel like I'm a remnant, <laughs> you feel that way? I feel like I'm the only one that cares. I'm the only one investing. I'm the only one pursuing. I'm, I'm reminded, I'm reminded, I'm reminded that God has a promise of a future hope and glory. I, I remember that God has promised the ultimate return on my investments. And then while others prepare for retirement, and while others worry about all those worries that this world brings while others worry about travel and homes and decorations and decor and and those are lovely worries I'm not I'm just saying if we prioritize them if those become the worries the investment the pursuit then we lost sight we don't remember the hope and glory we don't remember that you can't take any of that with you you can't. And that the only guarantee you have, and when it, if you've worked in investments, you can't use the G word. You can't use guarantee because there's no guarantees in investments. But the one investment that was guaranteed is the hope we have given to us by Jesus Christ. I remember that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what the Lord has in store for those who love him. I remember that one day the king will return. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, a new Jerusalem. The nations will come and bow. And God will be with us, but not in the temple in the Holy of Holies, where only a high priest can go in there once a year. But it will be Christ Jesus, the God man in flesh dwelling among us for eternity the hope of the nations so even though I'm in exile even though I feel I'm a remnant I, I sing until he comes come thou long expected Jesus born to set thy people free from our fears and sins release us let us find our rest in thee Israel's strength and consolation hope of all the earth thou art desire of every nation joy of every longing heart it's the cry of the church as we anticipate the coming of Jesus. And so as you spend this week preparing, and please do, I love it. I love family. I love gifts. If you want to get your pastor a gift, I'm totally okay with that. And you guys do. And that's beautiful, but just remember, the Advent season teaches us to wait. The Advent season teaches us to expect there's something better something greater and if you're in the advent season right now and you feel like you're in a dark moment just know 
there's an encouragement of a future glory, a hope and glory that we have in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We declare you worthy. And as we leave this place, may we never leave your presence, but Lord, help us to be aware that you go before us, Emmanuel, God with us. And as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the beauty of Christmas, let us not forget that you deserve all honor, all glory, and all praise. And we ask these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year. 